0: Good morning, everyone. Um, Yeah, it's nice to do this at home for a change. So it's lovely to be somewhere familiar. And uh, thank you, Dan, for uh, the opportunity and for leading uh, us uh, in in worship this morning. Uh, We're in the middle of a series called uh, The Cross, about looking through the cross. Uh, And you will see coming up is just where we are on that series. Uh, We're looking today at the issue of the cross and suffering. Are you overwhelmed this morning? Is it getting to the stage where you don't want to turn on the TV screen? How much compassion do we have left? How do we avoid just becoming hard-hearted? How do we cope with the guilt of forgetting about the atrocity before last because two more have happened in the two weeks since. Paris, Brussels, Nice, Ankara, Kabul, Munich, various places in the United States. And what makes it more difficult for us is that many of us are struggling with our own personal traumas. Maybe it's bad diagnosis Maybe it's relational breakdowns, betrayals, unfaithful partners, prodigal sons or daughters, redundancy, bereavement, loss. Our shoulders aren't big enough to carry our own pain, never mind the pain of the world. Or perhaps we even feel guilty talking about our own pain when others seem to be suffering so much more. What does our pain matter, particularly what does it matter to God when He has obviously so many bigger things to think about? I love reading fiction, uh, crime fiction in particular, uh, from Ian Rankin to Linwood Barclay to the daddy of them all, Colin Dexter, and the original Inspector Morse stories. And one of the things I love to do is to see if I can catch out the author in terms of the twist that we always know is going to come. And the sign of the really good ones is that no matter how many you've read, no matter how well you know the style, no matter how well you know how they develop the plot, they will still catch you with something that you weren't expecting. The key to great writing, and crime writing particularly, is that things are not what they seem. Things are not what they seem. And I guess my message this morning, as we look at the overwhelming pain and suffering in our world, or even inside of us, is that things are not what they seem. The problem of evil is often presented as one of those big apologetic issues for Christians to answer in the face of the arguments, say, of atheists. The existence of evil and the attacks like those in Nice, we are told, surely prove that an all-good, all-powerful God doesn't exist. And the interesting thing is that that argument against God was virtually unheard of before the 19th century. I think it's quite arrogant of atheists like Richard Dawkins and others to patronizingly imagine that Christians or people of faith have never thought about it. And if they had really thought about it, they wouldn't be Christians. Of course we think about it. Of course we struggle with it but it's not new to us. For millennia, Jews and Christians have existed in the midst of great suffering and persecution without once concluding that this must mean that God doesn't exist. Yes, we cry out to God like the martyrs in Revelation or like Job or like the psalmist, how long, O Lord? We cry out, Lord, have mercy. Come, Lord Jesus, and put an end to all of this suffering. But rather than doubting God, many call out to Him. There are, I believe, some important reasons why the evil of these past few months has hit us in such an overwhelming way. The first is globalization. Atrocities and genocides have sadly been part of our fallen world from time immemorial. We just didn't hear about them. Our grandparents And our ancestors before them would not have been aware of the ethnic cleansing, whether it be the Assyrians or the barbarians or the atrocities committed against the Kurds or the Armenians centuries ago. But now an atrocity in South Sudan or Indonesia is in our living rooms by the end of the day, and we feel overwhelmed. Secondly, hedonism. In this part of the world, we live a comfortable, affluent life, and we've started to believe, I think, that we deserve that that it's normal. In the past, life was nasty, brutish, and short. Life expectancy was low, and yet people often lived lives of humble faith and gratitude. And thirdly, our individual rights culture. We believe that we have the right to live a pain-free life, to have security, to have a democratic government, to have a good job, to have healthy kids. Death and destruction shouldn't come anywhere near us, even though we do live in a messed up and greedy world. And instead of seeing all of those things as gifts of grace, we start to regard them as rights which we merit simply because we're us. And any deviation from the good life causes us to complain, and so our list of griefs and grievances multiplies. And therefore, if we have high expectations of life And every day we are hit with atrocity after atrocity and insecurity after insecurity and fear after fear, we will indeed be overwhelmed. In the midst of it all, against that global backdrop in our seemingly insignificant lives, we go on suffering. What is God up to? Well, maybe things are not as they seem. There are four truths about suffering that I want us to hold on to this morning. What I have just said to help put global suffering in its perspective should never take away from the first important truth, and that is that your life is not insignificant, and neither is your suffering. Your suffering matters. It's important to you, and therefore it is important to God. Comparing it to others And saying it's not that important deprives you of the validation that you need to face it and to deal with it appropriately. Jerry Sitzer has written perhaps the best book on grief that I have ever read. It's called A Grace Disguised. Jerry lost his mother and wife and daughter, three generations of women that he loved deeply, when a drunk driver crashed into the vehicle he was driving. He has written about his experience, especially of how, as a Christian, when he was talking to people in the years after the accident about their particular loss of grief, he constantly faced people who were minimizing it and saying, Oh, of course, it's not so bad as yours. And, and Jerry Sitzer says something very important. He writes this He says, Loss of whatever kind is always bad. It's only bad in different ways. It's impossible to quantify and to compare. The very attempt we often make in quantifying losses is uh, is unhealthy. On the one hand, if you come out on the losing end of the comparison, my grief isn't that bad, then you're deprived of the validation you need to identify and experience the loss for the bad thing that it is. You sometimes feel that the little boy who scratched his finger and cried too hard and you don't receive sympathy. Your loss is dismissed as unworthy of attention and recognition. On the other hand, if you come out on the winning end of the comparison, you convince yourself that nobody has ever suffered as much as you have, that nobody understands you, and that no one can offer lasting help. You're the ultimate victim, and you indulge yourself with pain and gain a strange kind of pleasure. Whose loss is worse the question begs the point. Each experience of loss is unique. Each painful is in its own way, and each is as bad as everyone else's, but also different. No one will ever know the pain I've experienced because it's mine, just as I will never know the pain you may have experienced because it's yours. And so Sitzer says there is no point in comparison Central to the Christian faith, as we've been seeing in this whole series, is the cross. And above all, the cross stands as the proof that your suffering is important. We suffer because we live at the intersection between how the world should be and how it is. We experience that tension, that pain. You see, if we just lived in a sort of pseudo-paradise, we would be escapists. If we sort of lived in a make-believe hell, we'd be shriveled, heartless shadows of people with no joy. But we live in the in-between. We know the reality of pain, and yet we long for what we know to be true in our hearts, that there is a better place, that there is a better story, that there is a better way, and that there is a better world. Meantime, we suffer. And if it was trivial, if it didn't matter, if it was insignificant, it would not have taken the death of the Son of God to make it right. Our suffering matters. And secondly, our suffering is shared. And this is what I want to spend most time on this morning. It's the passage from Isaiah that Dan read about the suffering servant, the one who was disfigured beyond all appearance and was despised and rejected. A few years ago, 17-year-old Lizzie Velasquez was surfing for some music videos online. Just a normal teenage ploy to avoid doing some homework. And she saw a YouTube link entitled, See the World's Ugliest Woman. It was just a seven-second clip, but it had been watched over four million times. What she wasn't expecting was that the video would be of her. And the comments that people made, as usual, hiding behind the cloak of anonymity like cowards, made her stomach churn. People asking, among other things, why her parents had let her live. You see, Lizzie suffered from two rare conditions known as Marfan lipodystrophy. In the years following that, she fell into periods of deep depression, In recent years, she has come through it, and she's now an activist against bullying and a champion for people with similar disabilities. But such is the cultural pressure that our person who depends on how we look, that it drives those who don't make the grade, which is most of us, to despair. And if I told you every incident that our Christian Union staff workers had Of students despairing because they don't like the way they look or feel or the way they are, or the number of conversations our staff have had this academic year alone, it would take the whole summer. Well, for them, for those students, for you, for me, for Lizzie Velasquez, the suffering is shared. Isaiah 53 is the passage that draws that out. Here we see that God stands by not as a distant, sympathetic observer but as an intimate participant. One of the themes of this passage is the incredible contrasts between the world's assessment and the reality of God's. Things are not as they seem. Specifically, things are not as they seem physically, emotionally, socially. The good news is an upside-down kingdom, and nowhere is that more obvious than in the person of Christ. Look at Isaiah 52 and 53. Physically, he was nothing. Emotionally, he was humiliated. Socially, he was ostracized. And this morning, folks, do you feel ugly? Do you feel humiliated? Do you feel an outcast? Well, your suffering is shared. This is your God. Physically, it says he was nothing. And this is the antidote, the wake-up call to popular cool Christianity. Chapter 52 says his, verse 13 says about his face being disfigured beyond comparison. Do so you get the feeling of revulsion? Isaiah says that people treated the suffering servant, a prophecy of Jesus, the way we treated Lizzie Velasquez. They dehumanized him, they would ignore him, they would count him as nothing. Because there was nothing to attract. Well, Monty, are you saying Jesus was ugly? Well, what we have here at least is a corrective to some of the art of the centuries depicting Jesus as the ideal screen hunk with blow dried hair, or a corrective to some of what has been called, "our Jesus is my boyfriend" worship music. Because whatever he is, the suffering servant is not a poster boy. We may fall victim to this desire for Jesus to be the beautiful, cool dude that everyone will love. We may fall victim to it in our church life, in our response to moral issues. I was speaking to a Canadian pastor, Ross Lockhart, who taught here a few summers ago about how churches, of course, we would see it in the news, they're splitting over issues, for example, around same-sex marriage and He said that it's fascinating that it's always the older mainline churches who suffer from this because he says they want to hold on to the last vestiges of Christendom. Many within these historic churches have functioned from a position where they reflected the dominant social and moral positions, and now they're finding that they don't. The world has moved. And so they struggle if their neighbor disagrees with them or thinks that they're narrow-minded and they don't want that. So the temptation is to change position so that the neighbor won't have any more problem with the church. Younger churches, younger Christians don't have that problem. They know that to be a Christian means embracing something different and something that is at times unpopular and unattractive. And our second reading in Mark 8 showed that it involves taking up our cross and following Yeah, we want to be popular, we want to be inclusive, we want to be cool, we want to give no offense, but if that's our overriding aim, we will fail to be gospel people because the gospel is, Isaiah 53, verse 3, that we follow a despised Savior, someone from whom people hid their faces. This despised Savior came from a despised place. It's a root out of somewhere dead, parched ground, a dead stump sprouting, And while this world and society and even Irish society functions on who you are, where you came from, what school you went to, what your postcode is, we follow someone who came from an artisan household in a Palestinian Middle Eastern enemy occupied backwater. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Emotionally, he was humiliated. Isaiah says he was one who was familiar with grief. He had experiential knowledge of it. It says he was a man of sorrows, a man of suffering. And in Scripture, whenever anyone is described as a man of or a woman of something, it refers to their defining characteristic. You see, there can be a simplistic idea, I think, about the ministry of Jesus. That there were the popular years followed by the arrest and the trial and the death, and it all happened so quickly. No. A careful reading of the Gospels would show that from an early stage, the cross is presented as Jesus' conscious, known destiny. He was a man of sorrows. We see Him weeping over Jerusalem, weeping at the grave of Lazarus, pained by the unbelief of His people, hurt by the unbelief of His disciples. Distressed in the garden, battling in the wilderness with Satan. Every day on this planet must have been a battle that tore his heart apart as the perfect, sinless Son of God lived in this broken world. It must have at times almost overwhelmed him. We knew from the New Testament that he was tempted in every way as we are. And you know how hard temptation can be and how hard it can hit you how painful it can be. He has felt it. A man of sorrows. The end of his life with the mockery and the crown of thorns and the spitting and the jeering to come down off the cross. He was emotionally humiliated. And he was socially ostracized, like someone from whom people hid their faces, says Isaiah. It's interesting, isn't it? You read the Bible, Jesus never withdraws from people it's people who withdraw from Him. Jesus actually draws people. He doesn't withdraw. He calls us to Him. It is we who withdraw, like the rich young ruler walking away sad, like the nine lepers walking away ungrateful, like those who left because His teaching was too difficult. He was cast out. Symbolically, he was crucified outside of the city. And ultimately, even he was spiritually cast out of fellowship with his father. So, folks, this morning, whatever sphere you feel pain, physically, emotionally, socially, even spiritually, if your relationship with God seems irrevocably fractured at the moment, don't despair. He has been there. God the Son shares your suffering. In a world where it all depends where you come from, He came from nowhere. In a world where looks are everything, there was an ugliness about what He was and what He became. In a world where fame and fortune is what drives so many, He was humiliated. In a world where status is sought after, He was dismissed as a nobody. And then thirdly, our suffering is defeated. On the surface, the rebel rabbi is killed. The troublesome teacher is executed. The problem is over. But no, things aren't what they seem. You see, if the focal point of the cross is just that God shares our pain, we've got a problem He becomes just another sympathetic ear. In fact, the torture and the agony, the blood and the death, are all tragically futile. If all that Christ has done is to show that He cares, to demonstrate that He shares in our pain. Because if the only thing that we can say is God suffers too, then suffering is eternal. But that's not the case. As Christoph explained a couple of weeks ago, There have been in Christian circles recently a reaction against what theologians call penal substitutionary atonement. That just means that Jesus took our place, a substitute, and He bore the penalty, penal, of sin. He took the wrath of God against sin. And there's been a reaction against that. Instead, the emphasis has now come on Jesus sharing our pain, and the cross being a sign of love, which of course it is. So for example, some churches have changed some of the words of the hymns that we sing. So that well-known one in Christ alone, and on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That has been changed to the love of God is magnified. Nothing untrue about that. But what it does by replacing that first phrase the wrath of God is satisfied is that it denies a key part of what the cross is about. And this happens largely because people misunderstand sin and its seriousness, and they misunderstand the Trinity. As Christoph explained, God was not punishing an innocent third party. He was bearing the punishment Himself as God the Son, and He was doing it because it needed to be done. The evil, The sin we have witnessed in our television screens these past two weeks needs to be dealt with. But how does God put an end to that without putting an end to us because we too are sinners? He does so by taking it on himself in Christ. Sometimes when I deal with this issue, skeptics or agnostics will say to me, "Ah, you're letting God off the hook in the issue of suffering. Tim Keller brilliantly replies to that when he says, the cross shows that far from letting God off the hook, God put himself on the hook. The death of Jesus was not just about sharing our suffering, but about defeating it, about dealing with the very source of evil, about abolishing the last and final enemy. On the cross, Jesus didn't shout, I am finished. He shouted, it is finished. It wasn't a cry of resignation. It was a cry of accomplishment. You see, suffering for all its reality, for all its power over us, is temporary. It will pass. It doesn't make it into the final kingdom. It doesn't make it into the new heavens and the new earth the place where He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Suffering may seem our strongest, most potent problem just now, but as Graham Tomlin writes, suffering is too weak to storm the strongholds of God. Suffering is too weak to storm the strongholds of God. Yes, maybe as I said at the beginning, you feel that your shoulders are not broad enough to carry your own burdens, never mind those of Munich and Nice and Kabul. But here is someone whose shoulders were big enough to take on the pain of the whole world and to conquer. And because he bore it, we don't have to. We hand it to him with all of our questions and all of our fears and all of our doubts and even our anger and we look at the suffering of the world, and we look at the suffering inside, and we say to God, here, God, I can't deal with this. You have it. You deal with it. He will, because He has. See, the gospel is that out of this darkness can come something wonderful. As a child, I remembered, I suppose, about three different types of of pain. I remember the emotional pain of falling out with a close friend and running into my father's arms. And just recently, I held our goddaughter who had suffered the most awful broken heart. What do you say? All my father could say to me and all I could say to her was, there, there, it's okay. There, there, it's okay. But it wasn't okay. Okay. I was devastated. She was distraught. But for me and for her, the hug was important. It comforted, but it didn't solve the problem. And then secondly, as a child too, I remember the mental anguish as I was, you might laugh at this, but as I was pestered by a wasp. It's a phobia I have never quite overcome. I was in anguish until my father killed it and said, it's okay. Look, it's gone. It won't be bothering you anymore. And that solved the problem for a while. Then, thirdly, as a child, I also remember the physical pain of regular dental treatment, hating the thought of having to go back month after month for corrective treatment until one day I did go back, and the dentist looked at me, and he saw the realignment and he said, No more, it's good. It's perfect now. And that transformed the problem. You see, on the cross, God didn't just comfort us, sharing our pain and saying, There, there, it's okay. He didn't just defeat it by saying, Hey, look, it's gone, it won't be bothering you anymore the genius is. The genius is that as He showed in the cross He can take the worst and He can say, look, no more. It's perfect now. He can transform it. He can redeem it even into something that is actually good. This is my final point. Our suffering is not the last word. It's not the last word as far as our life here is concerned, because in following Christ, suffering loses its power, and it stops being something we fear. And when it arises, specifically when it arises out of our specific devotion to Jesus, it is something that Christians can embrace. It can even be seen as a calling. Paul writes to the Philippians that you are called not only to live for Christ, but also to suffer for Him. Peter says, To this we were called because Christ suffered for us that we might follow in his steps. What do we need as essential baggage to follow Jesus? Mark chapter 8. Jesus said, not take up your theological college degree and follow me. Not take up your guitar and follow me. Not take up your smartphone with 35 devotional apps and follow me. Not even, take up your Bible and follow me. He certainly didn't say, take up your megachurch pastor's private jet and follow me. He said, take up your cross. The only people who ever carried the cross were those who were going to end up on it. And that's our calling. So although our pain and suffering may come from very different sources, and some of those sources are outright evil, Suffering itself experientially, the hardship, the persecution, the pain under God's gracious hand in His severe mercy can be part of what we are called to do and be as a witness. The exact translation of the word martyr, witness, in this world. But suffering is not the final word. In an altogether more wonderful and ultimate way. Because as it was for our Lord before us, it can be for us the path to glory. The writer of the Hebrews says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. And therefore, our final destiny is not to be free from pain, that is too small but to be presented spotless and without blemish before God. Our destiny is so much more and so much greater than escaping from the brokenness of this world. It is being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Here in the suffering servant Of Isaiah 53 and the Messiah of Mark chapter 8, we have the one who plumbed the depths of human despair and disgrace for every last one of us. From the Lizzie Velasquithises to the bullied teenagers who are a little awkward to the deserted wife whose husband has accused her of letting herself go To anyone who has felt dismissed and discounted because they haven't matched up to other people's expectations. This is the gospel you match up to His. You are somebody in His eyes to be loved, to be glorified, to be presented as something beautiful to God the Father. That is our destiny. Things are not as they seem. He who had everything became nothing. He who experienced the intimacy of heaven's union became ostracized by His creation. We shut Him out of our world, our home. And yet through the cross He takes us and He opens up the doors of His home to us. And He who had no beauty in our eyes could take us in all our ugliness and overwhelming pain and grief and turn us into something beautiful in the eyes of God. Friends, that is what the cross has accomplished for us. Let me finish with another quote from this book by Jerry Sitzer. And a couple of years after the tragedy, the drunk driver in question was in court And he was freed. He was let off because of a legal technicality. And Sitzer describes how that was like revisiting the tragedy again and the sense of injustice that pervaded him. And yet he says this quite remarkably. Over time, I began to be bothered by this assumption that I had a right to complete fairness. Granted, I didn't deserve to lose three members of my family. But then again, I'm not sure I deserved to have them in the first place. Linda, my wife, was a woman of superior qualities. She loved me through some very hard times. My mother lived well and served people to her life's end. She showed a rare sensitivity to me during my rebellious teenage years. Diana Jane, my daughter, sparkled with enthusiasm for life and helped to fill our home with noise and excitement. Perhaps I did not deserve their deaths but I did not deserve their presence in my life either. On the face of it, living in a perfectly fair world appeals to me, but deeper reflection makes me wonder. In such a world, I might never experience tragedy, but neither would I experience grace, especially the grace God gave me in the form of the three wonderful people whom I lost. The problem of expecting to live in a perfectly fair world is that there is no grace in that world. For grace is grace only when it is undeserved. So he says, God spare us a life of fairness. To live in a world with grace is better by far than to live in a world of absolute fairness. A fair world may make life nice for us, but only as nice as we are. We may get what we deserve, but I wonder how much that is and whether or not we would really be satisfied with that. A world with grace will give us more than we deserve. It will give us life, even in our suffering. Let us pray. Lord God, you know the hearts of each one here this morning. You know our struggles. You know our pain. We ask that this morning we would look again at the face of the one who was wounded there for us. The one who was despised and rejected. And that we would know this morning that you believe our pain matters. And that you share that pain. But above all, that we would know by faith that you have defeated that pain. And even more wonderfully, by your graces disguised, you can transform it to your glory. Amen.